So I love the fact that we like to talk to each other. You guys are always welcome to do that right after church forever. Also, I'll throw this out there. I'm not doing this to cast dispersions on anybody. I'm just saying you can also come early. I'm just saying. I'm just saying because when we do the welcome at 10.30, and I say nobody here, and then like 10 minutes later after we start, oh, like, oh, there's people here today. I'm just saying you can come early if you like to talk. Just throwing it out there. Take it out if you want to feel it. If the Holy Spirit is saying something to you about it, hey, that's just, that's the Holy Spirit, not me. <laughs> Guys, I love the fact about 70 years ago, a pastor from Georgia started his ministry. Um, and what we know so much about his ministry was a call to reconciliation of equality and to justice. And as we come here, as we are here as a church to celebrate a day tomorrow, we, we want to acknowledge the work of this uh, great individual, but more so than that, this actually wasn't the work of an individual, it was the work of, of the gospel, the work of, the, of God that this individual is championing. He said he had a dream, a dream of equality, a dream of justice, a dream of a different nation, a, a different reality. But that dream wasn't just this one man's dream, that was a dream that was echoed all throughout the Bible. In Zechariah 7, 9 it says, thus does the Lord of hosts render true judgments Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And that none of you devise evil against another in your heart. We come together today um, during this time of prayer. And we have a very specific prayer in mind. Is as we celebrate Martin Luther King Day tomorrow, we want today to be a time where we as a church family come together and we celebrate the day, but more than anything, we celebrate the gospel. We celebrate the God who is behind all that dreaming of 50, 70 years ago. But as we celebrate that, we also celebrate, we acknowledge our sinfulness. We lament in what is wrong in our world today. We lament and we cry and we weep over the brokenness of our world and our society, knowing that there's still so much has not yet been accomplished in this dream. We check our own hearts as we come to this time of prayer and realize how much how many issues that we've been kind of ingrained into us through our circumstances and our culture and whatever it may be. We look at ourselves and then we also ask God ultimately, see God, you are the God of reconciliation. You're the God of justice. You're the God of mercy. God, we in our own power, in our own desire to be good enough people, to be people who want to fight for justice and fight against oppression, we're not able to do this on our own. God, will you move? So we admit our sin, we lament, and we ask God, God, will you do something? It's great that we have a wonderful dream, and it's a dream that is birthed out of the Bible, but we also know that this dream cannot happen, it cannot be accomplished without the move of God. Because the fact is, just this true reality, is that we are sinful human beings. And sinful human beings, man, they don't need much to find reasons to hate each other. They don't need much. And we will always find ways to hate each other. But what we ask for God, in God is that he gives us new hearts. Gospel understanding. That he tears down walls of hostility and creates bridges of reconciliation. So that's what we're going to pray for today during our time of prayer as a congregation. We're going to pray for God to, to address all of that we just talked about, but ultimately for God to move. So let's pray together.
God, as, as human beings, as individuals, God, we confess our sin. God, confess the way that maybe issues that we brought up, ways that we've been taught to think, even the ways we look at the world and the ways we often maybe don't care and see injustice and don't care or don't do anything or apathetic. God, we confess our sin and our own prejudices and our own issues that we face in our own heart. And God, we confess our sin openly before you know that we need you. God, we also confess sin as a, as a church, sin as a nation, sin as a people. God, that we've seen over and over again the fruits of, of injustice and oppression and prejudice. God, will you forgive us in Jesus' name? God, will you help us first as individuals to be people who are made new by you? God, we be people of, of the gospel, people who have been given new hearts, people who, who have an honest, heartfelt passion to love others because you love them. May we see the image of God in, in creation that you place in the, in, the, in the individuals of people around us. May we see your great handiwork. God, we change our hearts and our eyes. We move in us. God, will you move it in us as a nation? God, instead of seeing hostility and anger and separation, can we see unity and love and reconciliation? God, may we echo the dream that Martin Luther King dreamt, but also echo the dream that's all throughout the Bible. May we see your gospel truth come to us as a reality in this nation. God, we weep with those who weep. Those who are struggling in this time, those who are facing such adversity. Guys, God, we pray that you are with our leaders. God, give them wisdom and new hearts. And God, I pray that you use us, us even now, in the little and big ways, to be the change in this world that you've called us to be so that your kingdom may come on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hear the word of God from John 3. So you can follow along in your own Bibles or uh, on the screen. And this is John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at me saying, You must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. And so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, 
but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who, may, who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, David. Oh, I'm going to set up. We actually have the notes today. Last week, I uh, accidentally threw away Pastor Lawrence's notes, thinking they were from the week before. But the notes are here. I'm going to grab a prop. You guys know I like props. And don't look at my prop. It's very weird. So I'll pull it up later. So, all right. Good morning. I'm Danny. I'm the international student pastor here at Waypoint, and it's a pleasure to worship with you and a joy to preach God's word to you. As I prepared this, God really did a move in my heart. This is one of the most powerful chapters in all of scripture. All the Bible is powerful, but this is a very important and powerful account that just, just hearing it, I could just go sit down and we could just pray for the next hour and reflecting on what David just read. So, um, we're going to ask God to be with us and the Spirit speak through me as I quickly proclaim and look at and give you just what God's been teaching me as I was studying this. So we're in a sermon series, a church-wide study on the Gospel of John. Uh, we will study John together as a congregation from January through May, five months to dig deep and seek God and see what God will teach us individually and as a congregation. Grab my water. So this morning we are looking at um, John chapter 3, which includes the most quoted passage in all the Bible. Anybody know? John 3, 16, right? When I was, my kids were young, that was probably the first passage, the first major passage anyone memorizes. Most people can memorize Jesus wept, a few of the shorter ones. But the, John 3, 16, well, why is it the most quoted and the most memorized? And it's because it's, it's powerful and concise, and it contains the full gospel message in one statement. The message, the good news, that God in his love, the God of love, came to save his rebellious people. That's good news. So we're going to dig deep into this this morning. Uh, but why did I title it Water and Spirit, the Snake and the Love of God? So most of you are probably like, this is the John 3.16 chapter. So it should, you know, the love of God, I guess, is in there. I titled it that because I, I feel like there's, there's kind of three sections to Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus and uh, three, three kind of themes. Now, I found over a dozen themes. I just chose three that kind of summarize each section of the uh, chapter for us to look at this morning. Pastor Lawrence, actually, when we were talking about this and he, he asked me to, you know, if I could preach 
uh, one of the sermons in John, and I, I picked this one. He said, you won't call the sermon Nicky D. Jesus meets Nicky D. And I thought Nicky D is kind of his boy band name, you know. So that's, uh, for those of you who are old, I think that's NSYNC. So, uh, that's, so Nicky D would be his boy band name. And notice in that picture, this is like from a flannograph, like children's Sunday school. Notice Nicky D is kind of doing the contemplative thing as he's meeting Jesus. So that's my comic relief. We're going to go deep into some serious theological stuff. So I might call him Nicky D every once in a while just to, just to make you laugh. Okay, we can move past sync now uh, on the slide. So water and spirit, the snake and the love of God. These are three themes, themes of many that you can find in this important passage. I've actually taught this passage many times as a youth pastor, if you can imagine. And uh, one time I was in a, a Walmart or somewhere, Target, and I saw this pool noodle with a snake, with like a, a dragon. That's not, I found this one online, but it wasn't like this. But it actually had a dragon with, and I took some of the parts of the dragon off and I put some little fangs on them. And that was my prop when I used to give this lesson to my youth group. And I, and I carried this pool noodle for years, but I lost it. And those were 37 bucks on Amazon because it's the winter and they're price gouging, so I didn't buy one. But if it was the summer, I probably could have went to the store and bought a pool noodle with a snake on top or something. But uh, so this is my prop for this morning. It's, it's, I found this at my house. That's Bowser. He's kind of like a servant. And this is a crayon that my daughter had. Or, I don't know what this is. So. so when I was a youth pastor, I would, I would talk about God's love and people would be like, why in the world? How many of you even thought of that today? Why in the world, right before John 3.16, does Jesus bring up Moses lifting up a snake? I mean, you don't have to raise your hand, but it, it's this passage. There's some deeper things in here that we may miss as we're just focusing on the, the vital and important John 3.16. So I thought we would look at some of those today. So that's why I titled it what it was. So let's just look at what's going on right before it and right after it. So um, what's, how does John start? It starts with this amazing prologue. Pastor Lawrence preached on it. If you weren't here that Sunday, you can go online and listen to that sermon. I, I recommend that all of you do if you weren't here. Um, we get this introduction. In the beginning was the Word. John just goes right into it saying that, that the source of all things, the word that created everything was Jesus. And then he introduces John the Baptist. And then he goes into the calling of the disciples. And then he introduces Jesus' first miracle that John wants to introduce us to. It may not have been the actual first miracle, but it's the first one John introduces us to where Jesus turns water into wine at a wedding in Cana. And then it, John mentions that's the first of seven signs he doesn't say seven, but he says that's the first sign. And then uh, that he, showing that Jesus is from the Father. And then in the second half of chapter two, John recalls the account of Jesus confronting the religious authorities, clearing the temple. You guys know that scene, if you, if you, you know the Bible story. It's, that one's, that might've happened twice actually because of the different way different gospel authors show it. But, but John inserts it there. And, and when Jesus goes in and confronts the religious authorities, then John immediately goes to this encounter with Nicodemus that we looked at, we, that David read earlier. And then after that, John gives us more insight on the role of John the Baptist and maybe a little more theology going back to the prelude, to some of the same themes, linking the doctrine of the prelude with what Jesus told Nicodemus. Then the story of the Samaritan woman at the well, which Eric actually preached on this past summer. So I'm going to put a link on the city. So if you want to go back and listen to that sermon, if you weren't here, just, just to keep this teaching going. We're not going to preach on that during this series. 
But so you, you see what John's doing. This isn't chronological. Almost every scholar would say John is not doing it chronologically, but he's doing it theologically. He's trying to teach us something through presenting and showing who Jesus is and weaving theology and weaving important truths and weaving the proclamations of Jesus throughout it. And then after the woman at the well, then the next encounter is uh, what Pastor Lawrence also talked about last week was another miracle in Cana, kind of the second sign. And that's when Jesus heals the, the officer's son, uh, which the, the wedding was in Cana. Meeting Nicodemus was in Jerusalem. The, the, throw, the tearing up of the tables and the Jesus confrontation in the temple was in Jerusalem. Then it goes back to Cana. So you see John is weaving these theological truths, but we, we, I want us to think about the three people that John introduces us to. So the first one is Nicodemus. The second one is the Samaritan woman at the well. And the third one is this government official who Jesus heals his son. They represent three different kinds of people in the Jewish world. Uh, the government official is most, like, most likely ethnically Jewish, but works for the government of the Romans and the puppet government that the Jewish, half-Jewish king Herod sets up with the Roman government. So probably kind of despised by the Jewish people. His official position puts him at odds with maybe, say, the Pharisees or the, the Jewish leaders who wanted the Romans out. They didn't like Herod. Actually, that's why they were so excited that Jesus might be this new David, this new king that overthrows the Romans and overthrows Herod. The second person uh, is this Samaritan woman. And um, the Samaritan woman was a Samaritan who the Jews generally treated as despised, half-breed, distant ancestor heretics. It's a lot of words. Despised, half-breed, distant ancestor heretics. Any of y'all ever watched The Hobbit or Lord of the Rings? Like, like, but Bilbo's like, there's parts of his family that he doesn't like. You guys probably have those. Like, the Jews wanted nothing to do with the Samaritans. And over time, their theology had grown apart. And serious Jews didn't like Samaritans. So when Jesus engages the Samaritan woman, and many of them believe, John is inserting it there on purpose. And it's a long dialogue. It's equally as long as, as the Nicodemus dialogue. And then we meet Nicodemus. Um, John is being intentional and in presenting all three. Out of, and even the order, I would argue, is intentional. So let's look, let's meet Nikki D. All right, let's, let's dive in. So John 3, verse 1. There was a Pharisee. A Pharisee is just a, kind of the highest religious order of the time. There was a few different religious orders in the Jewish religion, but these guys thought they, they were in charge. They, were the, they, were, they had it all together. A man named Nicodemus who was a member of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. So this guy probably was rich, powerful, influential, and he was an upright, righteous leader. He looked good. He smelled good. He, he, he did it all. And he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Notice that John inserts that word signs again because that's part of the theme of, of this section from chapter 2 to chapter 4, is this idea of the signs. Like, they keep looking for signs because they want this Messiah that they want, but they miss some of the signs that what the Messiah really is like. Um, and Jesus replies, this is an interesting reply, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Now, uh, this is, seems like a strange reply. Now, I want to acknowledge that this dialogue and the dialogue with the woman at the well and the dialogue with the officer's 
son were probably longer than John records. Jesus might have talked to Nicodemus for a couple hours. This is just John giving a summary of what Jesus said. Now, John was Jesus' best friend, and I believe the Holy Spirit inspired John to put down what we needed to know from this account. I believe Jesus said every one of these words, and John records them uh, from the mouth of Jesus, but also by the power of the Holy Spirit. But this wasn't the whole account. Nicodemus does, you can read this whole thing in like about a minute. So Nicodemus was probably with Jesus for much longer than a minute. Um, But this is how John wants us to know. This is Jesus' key reply. Very truly, I tell you, no one can see. Notice signs, see, like I'm looking for. Uh, one, one commentator says, or enter, experience, like this word see means like to get, to, to get into it, to, to really experience it. The kingdom of God, unless they are born again. And then again, this, this is how John says, this was Nicodemus's response. How can someone be born when they are old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and spirit and the spirit flesh gives birth to flesh but the spirit gives birth to spirit you should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again the wind blows wherever it pleases you hear its sound but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going so so it is with everyone born of the spirit how can this be you are israel's teacher and you do not understand these things so what is jesus doing so the pharisees most Pharisees we, we can get would probably have large chunks of the Old Testament memorized. And they definitely would have had the key texts memorized. So it's probably almost 100% that Nicodemus would have the major prophecies of Ezekiel memorized. So when Jesus is saying you should know these things, let's, let's look at the early part of Ezekiel. Now, let me explain who Ezekiel is. Ezekiel is a prophet about six, who was born about 600 years before Jesus, and he actually saw the fall and the destruction of Jerusalem and the people getting carried into exile. And God used him to tell the people, because of your, your sinfulness, because of your disobedience, God is allowing this to happen, allowing these foreign armies to invade you, but his covenant promise will always hold true. And these are some of the reminders of the covenant promise as the people are seeing their homes and villages being destroyed and they're being sent to another place. Ezekiel 11, 17 to 20. Therefore, say, this is God telling Ezekiel to say this to the people. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I will gather you from the nations and bring you back from the countries where you have been scattered. And I will give you back the land of Israel again. So the reason why Nicodemus is back in the land of Israel is because of God's covenant faithfulness, not because of what the people did. Um, Nicodemus is 600 years after, after this account. Um, They will return to it and remove all its vile images and detestable idols. I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from their heart, their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Basically a real heart, not a heart of stone, a heart that beats and produces blood and oxygen. Then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people and I will be their God. Jesus knows for a fact that Nicodemus knows this passage, this promise. Then if you go to the end of Ezekiel, as, as Ezekiel is continuing to, to prophesy and, and the end, toward the, closer to the end of his life, he says this. This is in 36. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back to your own land. Again, Nicodemus is back in Jerusalem because of God's covenant faithfulness. 
Now listen to this. This is 600 years before Jesus. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. See the water and the spirit? Nicodemus would definitely have this passage memorized. This is a key promise. Just like we have John 3.16 memorized, Nicodemus would have known this passage. I will remove from your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Right after this is the famous Valley of the Dry Bones, where God literally takes dead people and makes them alive again. Nicodemus would have known all this. And when Jesus says, you should already know this, what I'm telling you isn't new. It's been proclaimed over and over again through God's word. And you're the defender of the law. You're the one who teaches the Bible. So Nicodemus, I'm here to tell you that you must be born again. And then Jesus goes on in this encounter. So let me just break this down. So Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, I didn't just come from God to be a good teacher and to show you some signs and to be this Messiah who conquers the Roman Empire. But he, I don't even think Nicodemus is worried about that part. The people wanted Jesus to be the conqueror of the Roman Empire. Nicodemus just wants to know, is there a little bit more teaching from God I need? Because I want to be washed. I want to be totally right with God. And Jesus is saying, like Ezekiel said, you got to be, no one is good enough. Just a little more teaching is not going to make you right with God. None of us can wash ourselves clean. And I really believe that Nicodemus and his group thought they could wash themselves clean. They were trusting in the covenant faithfulness of God and trusting in these passages, but they missed the passage. And Jesus is trying to say, you must be born again. You must be washed clean from within. And Jesus is now telling him, I'm the way Ezekiel's prophecy is going to come true. Me, the person, I am God. I am here to do this. This is true for Nicodemus, but it's true for all of us. Uh, Pastor Tim Keller says about this passage, he says, Nothing you have done moves you any closer to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Everybody's got to start over. Christianity is not an addition to all the good things you have done. It's a whole new thing. And Nicodemus really thought, okay, I'm generally a good guy. God, I have God's favor. All I need to, now this new guy's showing some cool signs, so I need to make sure I'm right, you know. And Jesus is like, no, even you, Nicodemus, need to be born again. The woman at the well, she knew she needed to be born again. The government officer, he knew he needed Jesus because his son was dying. He probably thought, maybe my son's dying because I'm not a good Jew, because I hang out with, I'm running with Herod's side of things and, and not on the Pharisee side. I, I, we don't know. That's speculative. But for some reason, he knows that, he, he, that Jesus is his only hope. The woman at the well knew her sin. She was a Samaritan. And she believed, and she went back to her village, and many other people believed that Jesus was the Messiah. You know, hundreds of years of shattered history and brokenness. One statement by Jesus, a woman at the well who's had five husbands and is living with another one. A woman who's at the well at, in the middle of the day because she's shamed by society. Jesus saves her. But Jesus doesn't tell the stories and, and go back to these accounts of the Old Testament with her like he does with Nicodemus. He's trying to tell Nicodemus, hey, you don't think you're the woman at the well. You think you got it all together, but everybody, all of us need to be washed clean. All of us are dead in our sin. All of us are broken. 
Paul puts it like this, the Apostle Paul, who also was a Pharisee, who Jesus comes to and transforms him. Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. We put on a new self, we're a new creation. This is alluding to what Jesus is talking about. Jesus came to make it happen. Nicodemus needed to be born again. The woman at the well needed to be born again. The man whose son was sick. All of us, we need to be born again. We need to be washed clean. We need this water to clean us and the spirit to literally blow into us. In the creation account, God breathes and Adam and Eve come to life, right? He breathes into them. In the Valley of Dry Bones, dead things come to life. That's Jesus is saying we're dead in our sin. We're dead in our brokenness. We're cleansed by the water and the Spirit breathes life into us and we are born again. Now what about Moses and the snake? So I'll just hold it up. All right. John 3, verse 13. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. So Jesus is calling himself the Son of Man. And this is a prophecy. So a prophecy from Daniel where the Son of Man is going to come and do some really awesome stuff. So they're all anticipating this Son of Man. So Jesus is saying, I'm the fulfillment of those prophecies. And we're gonna, I'll mention another quote on that later. I know I might be leaving you hanging, but Jesus is saying he's, he's the son of God, but he's also the son of man. He's using this title because he's fully God, but he's also fully man. Just as Moses, Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up. And why must the son of man be lifted up? So that everyone who believes in him would have eternal life. It's interesting, this is what comes right before John 3.16. Um, so let's look at the background story in the Old Testament. I'm giving you a lot of Bible today. Let's go to Numbers 21. So Moses leaves the people out of Egypt, right? And miraculous thing after miraculous thing happened for them to leave Pharaoh's court, their slaves in Egypt. And Moses, by the power of God, is able to get the people out and the, he parts the Red Sea. They walk, on, they walk across and as they begin to encounter foreign armies, they start complaining. Actually, right before this account in Numbers 21, God gives them victory over an army. And then this is, so this is where we are in that journey. They traveled from Mount Or along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread and no water, and we detest this miserable food. They detested the manna that God provided. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes. God allowed all these venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord would take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it on a pole, and anyone who's bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on the pole. And when anyone was bitten by the snake, they looked at the bronze snake and they lived. So that's the account that Jesus is alluding to. Now I want us to think about snakes. This is a funny story. So this wasn't in my original notes, but this morning I'm in Pastor Lawrence's office and uh, Ryan LaFree, he says, hey Lawrence, do you have a few minutes this afternoon? I need you to help me move something in, in, my, in a barn. 
And Lawrence is like, sure, I can help. And he's like, the only thing is, is there's snakes. There might be snakes in there. And Lawrence is like, I can do roaches, I can do mice, but I can't do snakes, you know. And it's funny that I heard that this morning. I, I remember um, one time I actually, we were on a, a summer program and we were at Pepperdine University and there's these beautiful mountains and we went on a hike and we go on this long hike and when we get back, the, the person in the dorm where we were staying was like, you know that you're not supposed to go out there because it's like infested with snakes right now. We were, thank God that we didn't get bit. But most of the time snakes aren't poisonous, but a poisonous snake without medicine, once it bites the person, they're slowly gonna die. And Jesus is using this to say like, that's what sin is. We all are poisoned. And Jesus, they were poisoned in the desert. They were, they, this venom was in them and it was slowly going to kill them. And God provides a way. Look at this thing and you'll be saved. Interesting thing about this is if you go about a, 900 years later, actually they entered the promised land, they established kingdoms. Most of their kings were bad. They generally didn't obey God. Um, but 900 years later, in 2 Kings, speaking about King Hezekiah. Oh, we'll show one more slide. So the next one, if you notice medical, uh, a lot of medical things use this, and most people think this is linked to Moses, but this is also other Near Eastern cultures use this idea of a snake. It wasn't exclusive to this story, and even the Greeks had a god. So, so the symbol was like a symbol of healing. So you'll see it in some medical things. It's not always linked to the Moses story. It's linked to quite a few different mythologies. Not, this is true. Moses, we believe Moses did this, but the idea of this is that in the ancient world, this, this, was, this was something that they knew that they had no hope when a snake bit them. Once the poison started overtaking you, you would die. So um, that's why you'll see this symbol uh, show up. So I thought I would to mention that. But let, now let's go to 2 Kings 18. So King Hezekiah was one of the few good kings. And here's what he does after he takes over. It says, he did, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. He removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. Now, these were all things where people worshipped the Canaanite gods and the other Near Eastern gods. Instead of worshipping the God who delivered them and the God who saved them and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they worship these other things. So Hezekiah has to destroy all these idols. And remember the passage in Ezekiel, part of why they're in trouble, part of why they go into exile is because they didn't destroy the idols and they worship these idols. And you, people like us might be like, well, I don't worship idols, but we do. Yeah, we don't, we don't go create stones and worship them, or, but we worship our stuff, we worship our money, we worship, we worship all kinds of things. We create new idols. They may not be made of stone, but... We, we also need to go through and, and ask God, what are, what are the things that I worship instead of you? But listen to this next one. This is fascinating. And, and uh, what's his name? Nicky D, D would have been very aware of this. He broke the pieces of the bronze snake Moses had made. For up to that time, the Israelites had been burning incense to it. That's weird. So they preserved this thing and they're, now they're worshiping it. The, thing, the very thing that they were supposed to worship God. And I find this interesting, too, because they lose the law sometimes and they don't worship God, but they save this thing. They lost so much of, of what God originally gave to them, gave to uh, 
David when he became king, but they, they preserved this tradition and they worshiped this thing. So Hezekiah destroys it. So Nicodemus would have been very familiar with both of these accounts. Very familiar. All Jews of the time that were serious Jews knew about Moses and the snake, and they knew that Hezekiah destroyed it. So why does Jesus give him this Old Testament lesson? Because he wants to show Nicodemus, Nicodemus, that his purpose for coming was not just signs and good teaching, but was to wash him clean, to wash him with this water, and, he, and that Nicodemus needed to be born again. So when Jesus says this, he's bringing Nicodemus into what he already knows. And he's teach, but, he, but then Jesus goes on, and he says something that there's no way Nicodemus would have known what Jesus was talking about. He says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man, Jesus is just talking about himself, and Nicodemus would have recognized that, must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Remember, Nicodemus knows what the Son of Man is. He knows that Jesus is saying, I am the Son of Man. And Nicodemus may not be doubting that because Jesus is doing incredible things, signs and miracles. But why does he say he must be lifted up? What, where is Jesus lifted up? The cross. Interesting thing, the cross is humiliation. It's an execution, but it's also exaltation. New Testament scholar D.A. Carson explains it like this. Nicodemus, of course, could not have been expected to grasp the idea that Jesus, of Jesus on the cross at that time. But the Moses account should have been clear to him. Nicodemus was being challenged to turn to Jesus for new, work, new birth in much the same way as the ancient Israelites were commanded to turn to the bronze snake for life. Only when Nicodemus saw Jesus on the cross, when he literally saw him on the cross, or perhaps in a later reflection of the cross, would it become clear what the lifting up or the exaltation really was. That what happened, Jesus' exaltation took place on a brutal block of wood on a forsaken site, outside of Jerusalem. So when Jesus speaks, the Son of Man must be lifted up, we know he's referring to the suffering and the death on the cross. By his death, we are healed. But his humiliation on the cross was also an exaltation. Because of that, we were brought up. We were healed. And through it, anyone who believes in Jesus is healed and saved and given eternal life, right? Amen. Amen. But this is what's cool about this. There's a lot of theology in this. We know that Jesus speaks about this being lifted up, but it's also referring to the ascension. So Jesus, here's, so what's the ascension? Jesus comes, God, he, God enters into human history. The light breaks through the darkness. Jesus comes, he's born into a poor family in a poor part of the world. He lives a perfect life of obedience to God. He suffers and dies. He lifted up on the cross. He's buried. He rises again. He, teaches his, he comes back and teaches his people. And then he ascends to heaven. So the ascension is God returning, Jesus returning to his glory. So he's double lifted up. Let's look at John 12. You don't have to go to your Bibles. I'll put it on the screen. This is Jesus talking later. He's teaching later in his ministry. 
And John tells us this in, in verse 12. Jesus says this, now, the time, now is the time for judgment on the world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. So D.A. Carson, again, this New Testament scholar, says, in John's gospel, we see the three themes. We see these three themes related to the Son of Man. Divine revelation, the exaltation, and the obedient suffering of the Son. Jesus is lifted up. He's the divine revelation. He's the exaltation. And his obedience makes it where he, after his life, he's lifted up and he's returned to the glory that he once shared with his father. While those who turn to him, as the Israelites turn to the bronze snake, they experience new birth. So now we can see why Jesus tells Nicodemus, like refers to this, and we, we get a hint. But this is for Nicodemus, but it's also for us. But the snake account, this we must be born of water and spirit and, and we must look to Jesus to be healed. And this Old Testament teaching that, that Jesus says Nicodemus should have so clearly known isn't the end of John 3. I wish I had more time to go into the last part of John chapter 3. It reads almost like a prologue, like it, it has a lot of deep theology. It reads like the prologue in chapter 1. Jesus proclaims his purpose and the profound love of God for the world, and the Father's plan to send His one and only Son to save His people. Like I said, I can't go into everything here. If, if we really did John exegetically, it would take about two years, probably as a church. And not that we don't want to do that, but we want to, give you, we want to let you guys dive deep, and we want to cover lots of different parts of the Bible too. But this is a vital... Under, understanding John is vital to all of our faiths. Um, so what I want to ask you to do is pray and ask God to teach you that you grow and mature in your faith as we study John. So in that, I'm going to give you four action points for this morning. I'm going to end with this. I, I mean, I wish I could just spend hours. Like, I, I have stacks of notes. Actually, when you go to the commentaries, you could find one this fat just for like John chapter 1 through 4. This fat. And I'm talking like there's commentary after commentary after commentary, just digging. The deeper you dig, it's like the more gold you find, the more beautiful, the more precious it gets. So here's my first thing I just want to leave you guys with. One, know the gospel of John. Know it well. Use these five months as we're doing it as a church to know this book. Read it through a couple times. Go home this weekend and, and read chapters one through four. Um, there's this Bible called the NIV Biblical Theology Study Bible. And the editor is D.A. Carson, who's one of the top John scholars. He spent almost his whole life studying the New Testament, but he's focused a lot on John. So his John stuff in this is really good. I think it's like 35 bucks on Amazon. It's fat. They, this is actually the old edition. They, they supposedly made the print a little easier to read and stuff. So that's, that's what the website says. But if you don't have a study Bible, this is a great one. It, it just goes through biblical theology, just really helps link the Bible together. But the John notes are phenomenal. There's some other great study Bibles. The ESV study Bible is a great one, too. Um, we're here as your pastors. to. If you have questions, you can always email us. Uh, in, your, in your small groups, you're going to be discussing this. This doesn't end just with listening to the sermon. Know the book of John. You know, um, John's titles, John's called the evangelist. You know that in church history, they call him the evangelist. He's known as the best friend of Jesus. 
He's known as the disciple Jesus loved, and he's known as the eagle. I thought the eagle one was cool. And, and most people think he's called the eagle. Like each, each of the 12 disciples got a, an animal attached to them. And some people think that ancient people thought that eagles could fly and look into the sun without it hurting their eyes. We don't, I don't know if that's true anymore, but ancient people thought it was true because of the way eagles flew. So most people think the reason why John's the eagle is because he's the only one who could look directly at the sun. I thought that was pretty cool. We don't know that for a fact, but John knew Jesus well, and he left us with this amazing book. Know it, know it, know John chapter three. Study it together. Ask people to help you. Ask God for wisdom. Let, let's be people of the word and people who know this important book that, that God left us with, that Jesus left us with. Number two, keep striving to know about God and understand his kingdom and his love for the world. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And then after this, I believe John gives a deep theology. He, in, he intertwines how, some theology of how God saves us and John, where John the Baptist fits in. And then he goes, he, he links this back to chapter one and two, and then he links it to further chapters. But then Paul teaches on this. First John goes, John himself goes back and, and teaches more about God's love for us. So strive to understand God, his kingdom. And, and one place to start is by really understanding John 3 and what, what is being taught there. And it, it's hard. I'll, I'll be honest. As you read it, you got you to know it. And, and you, you got to begin to say, what is God really teaching me here? All right. And I want us to know this for two reasons. One is for your own comfort and hope. When we know the truth of the gospel and the kingdom of God and, and what our hope is, and what the, how the gospel saves us and transforms us, it just makes it easier to make it through each day. The world is hard. Life is hard. We need to be constantly reminded of the gospel. It's okay to read these passages to yourself, to say them over and over again. You need to be reminded of this. But another thing is, it gives us hope to share Jesus with others. Like, I can share, I can t I've used this example before, but I can tell you about certain Auburn football games that I was at because I really enjoyed them. In my lifetime, I've seen Auburn beat the number one team four times in person. Four times we beat the number one team in the country. One of those was the Gators, Pastor Lawrence, sorry. Uh, twice was the Gators, actually, and once was in Gainesville. That was really cool. But I, I've seen it. I could recall every play of that game because I was there, I experienced it. It's not hard for me to tell you what happened at that game because I, I loved it. I loved every minute of watching my team win and watching the underdog beat the number one team. If we know God and we know his word and we know his gospel, as we engage our neighbors and the people around us, it's, it's gonna flow out of us. I'm gonna tell one story. So I lived in, we lived outside of Boston in one of the cities next to Boston and one of the most, considered one of the most liberal cities in America. And uh, I was working as a chaplain at Boston University and Harvard and my neighbors knew that and they also knew I was helping out at a local church. And they would just literally come up to me at events and be like, do you proselytize? Do you hate people? I mean, literally, they were like, wow, nice to meet you too. I mean, they, they were very upset about who I was and the churches that I was involved with. And I remember one time um, they asked me, someone just sat me down and they said, 
so you, what's your church's stance on this? And it was kind of a, a topic. And I, I answered and I said, you know, our church takes the historic Christian position on this, the orthodox position that's been taken over thousands of years. But we want everyone to come. And I, and I, and I was, because of the overflow of I knew John and I kind of knew those people, I, I just said, why don't you come? Why don't you come and meet Jesus? I said, the, the goal of our church you know, those things are important, and we, we want to follow Jesus, so that's why we set up these, these standards and these rules. But the goal is to know Jesus. Jesus didn't argue Nicodemus with Nicodemus about where Nicodemus wanted to go. Jesus pointed him to what Nicodemus needed. And what do those people need? They need to know that there are sinful, broken people who need to be washed um, just the term born again, actually, is now considered like a negative term in our culture. Like they would ask me, are you a born again Christian? I mean, people ask me, yeah. I'm like, wow, nice. Welcome to, you know, Massachusetts. Thanks for meeting, you know, and I was like, okay, you know, yeah. I was like, yes, but they don't know what it means. They don't know how this transforms me, the hope that I have because I'm born again. Now there's other people who, when you tell them they can be born again, their life, they feel like their life, they know their life is so messed up, like the woman at the well. That they're bouncing off the walls. They're like, how can I find this Jesus? So you're going to encounter lots of different people. You may not be called to work at universities like I do, but you're always called to love people and to point them to Jesus and to, to understand them and to know them. So I would say that knowing John's gospel isn't just for your own knowledge, but it's, it's you're entering into the, the goodness of God and the kingdom of God, and you're able to share and able to love people. So that's, that's my challenge with knowing the gospel of John and, and really digging deeper into what it means to be part of the kingdom of Jesus. Um, let's look to the healer and live. This is the third point. You are not condemned. The poison will not kill you. One, one New Testament scholar says this, but the point of the whole story is that you don't have to be condemned. You don't have to let the snake kill you. God's action in the crucifixion of Jesus has planted a sign in the middle of history, and the sign says, believe and live. And that's the message you can tell people. Believe and live. That's what changed me. That's why I go to church every Sunday. That's why I want to know Jesus, because he is the Son of God. He is the healer. He is the source that spoke everything into existence. He knows me better than I know myself. I can look to him and be healed. All of us know we're broken. Even the smartest people know that there's someone smarter. Even the healthiest people get sick or their bones begin to break down. Their bodies begin to break down. All of us know deep down in our core we need to be healed. And all of us want eternal life. We all want to know that our future is secure. Do you know what happened to Nicky D? Nicodemus? John 7, I'll go through this quickly. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees and asked them, why did you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. Verse 47, you mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees reported? Have any of the rulers or Pharisees believed in him? No, but this not mob knows nothing of the law. There is a curse on them. Listen to this. Nicodemus, so the Pharisees are like, let's kill Jesus. Let's execute this this heretic, Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, a Pharisee, asks, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? They replied, are you from Galilee? You know, and, and they, they, they condemned Nicodemus. Now let's go to John 19. 
Later, Joseph, this is after Jesus has been crucified and he's died. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus. Nicodemus believed. Like the woman at the well, it was instant. The man, the government official, it was instant. It says their family believed almost right away. Nicodemus, God was working in his heart. He, when he saw Jesus lift on the cross, I believe he was like, wow, it's true. I can be healed. So he risked everything, his position, his status, everything to go touch the body of Jesus. One commentator said, only servant women touch dead bodies in the Jewish world. Men did not, especially Pharisees. A Pharisee was forbidden from touching a dead body. And, and two rich men, two men of status, were willing to lose everything because they were born again. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. So can you imagine Nicodemus? He probably had servants bringing the 75 pounds of stuff. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it. They touched it with the spices and strips of linens. Nicodemus was born again. My final thing, believe and be born again. This is John 16. See how I'm just weaving lots of stuff in John. At this, some of his disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying in a while uh, you will see me no more, and then after then in a while you will see me because I'm going to the Father? They kept asking, what does he mean in a little while? And they didn't understand what he's saying. He's talking about his crucifixion and his ascension. He's going to leave them. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, so he said to them, Are you asking one another what I meant when I said, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. And he's talking about his crucifixion. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. This is the part I want us to think about. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. Remember Jesus talks about born, being born again? But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. The woman suffered to bring new birth. Jesus suffered and died so that we could have life. And it was for joy. He did it for the joy set before him. He paid the penalty of our sin. He conquered death in the grave so that we could be born again, so that we could be reconciled to God, so that we could have eternal life. We can rejoice now, and no one can take away our joy. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this message. I pray if there's anyone in here who doesn't know what it means to be born again, that you would work in their heart, God, and that your water and the Spirit would renew them. And they would say, today is the day I want to know Jesus. I need to be born again. I need to be cleansed and made new. God, I thank you for saving us. And God, I thank you that you are our hope and that you are our joy and that no one can take away our joy. Use us to build your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.